Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Hello. Hello, everyone. I believe we're having some um, audience members filter in. Um, so maybe just a moment while we make sure everyone is in the room. Okay, brilliant. Um, well, hello everyone. I will be introducing the session and myself shortly, but before we jump in, I wanted to provide some instructions on language interpretation. Um, I will read them in English and then our, our interpreter will read them in Espanol and Spanish. Um, so to listen and participate in English, if you're using a computer, click the globe icon that will appear on the bottom right of your Zoom window and select English. If you're using a tablet or a smartphone, tap your screen and click the dots that say the three or four dots that say more on the top or bottom right of your Zoom window um, and select language interpretation, then English and make sure to click done. Uh, we recommend that you stay in your channel for the entire session so you're able to participate. And if you have any issues, please let us know using the chat function in Zoom. Um, over to my colleague uh, for the Spanish. Okay, great. Okay, great. Hopefully that was uh, understood in all the languages. So let's let's get going. Um, so welcome, welcome to the first interactive dialogue session where our panelists will be exploring the barriers that uh, feminist organizers face in the real struggles as Aya so eloquently shared in our first session um, that are facing many of these organizers and how these dynamics are evolving as we push the rock uphill as um, in Albi's words. Our discussion will consider the blockages and backlash facing these efforts and how to best overcome them. My name is Rachel George. I am a research fellow here in ODI's Gender Equality and Social Inclusion Program. I'm part of the research team behind the Align platform, which we mentioned earlier in our sessions, uh, which focuses on the transformation of gender norms, the invisible rules that underpin persistent structural inequalities all around the world. Part of this work involves exploring drivers of what changes these norms, which is why we are here today, to elevate the voices of movements and organizations who are doing just that. Align's most recent report, um, which we mentioned, Mobilizing for Change, explores the critical roles that many women's social movements and organizations around the world are playing in shifting gender norms, including a lot of the literature uh, highlighted by Hakima in our first session. But this work isn't easy and it requires deeper attention, appreciation, understanding and support. So this panel will dive into the experiences and critically the barriers that need to be overcome in order to unlock the power of this activism and to build partnerships and work for justice. Uh, so before we jump into the session, some logistical points. Um, just some housekeeping. So we are holding this session on Zoom to encourage an interactive dialogue. We're really excited about this and we'd really like to hear from you directly when we open up for the discussion soon. Um, so after our panelists have made opening remarks, we will then open the conversation for the audience to raise your digital hand um, if you would like to speak. Um, so the team will come to you and open your microphone so that everyone can, can hear you. Um, so do start thinking about questions and reflections you'd like to share. 
And when asking a question, we hope and appreciate if you can be as uh, brief as possible so we're able to bring in as many voices as we can today. And we will prioritize hearing from the audience directly in this way, um, but do you know enter anything urgent into the chat if you feel you need to, um, to keep the discussion going or use the Zoom Q&A function. And lastly, do keep following and using our hashtag feminism unlocked and tag ODI underscore global um, so we can have the conversation continuing on social media. So with that, I'm delighted to open this interactive session on the barriers feminist movements face with our first speaker, Charnor Ba, who is co-founder and co-CEO of Purposeful in Sierra Leone, which is a global hub for feminist organizing and activism rooted in Africa, which is working on a radical rethink um, to the approaches to grant making. So over to you, Charnor, we're delighted to have you. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here. Thanks to ODI for organizing and particularly for inviting us at Purposeful. Um, I just want to say some framing thoughts, and uh, I see many people on here, so I'm looking forward to an interactive conversation. Uh, at the heart of our work is a radical intent, and that is to move resources that were not designed for, not meant for, feminist activist organizers, but to move these resources to them. That's the primary challenge that we have. The aid infrastructure, as it is designed, is not meant uh, to reach these groups because the, all the systems and the structures and the logistics of having access to these resources themselves are in many ways barriers to the groups that we seek to fund at Purposeful. We provide unrestricted resources in the ways that the groups want those resources. So whenever I talk about this and I say, we reach girls and girls groups who organized and people immediately ask about, but that is risky. What are the risks that are involved? Because our systems kind of immediately get to that ticking point where the idea of activist, feminist, girls having access to money in a system that's not designed for them immediately kind of ticks those bombs. So, I think one of the biggest structural challenges we face is, as I said, one, both the intent of the resources and what is needed to even have access to these resources. Reporting, the criteria for reporting. And we, we fund groups that do not have, and it's important to say this, do not have bank accounts and do not want to have bank accounts. Groups that are not registered and are not interested in registering because even the very fact of their registration can be tools of oppression. And most of the people who have resources, and you know, I've been talking recently about the, the very important role that decolonization must play in this conversation that we have around feminist activism and feminist access to resources, is the fact that the, the, the aid infrastructure as designed itself has many colonial assumptions especially about those of us in so-called third world countries or in the global south. The idea that you know, we're risky, we are corrupt, and you have to place all these barriers to even being in the room and, and, and being part of these conversations. So at Purposeful, one of the major things we're doing is, is work with donors, working with allies and activists to figure out how we overcome some of these barriers. I also just wanted to speak briefly about, you know, as I'm, I'm, a, I'm an African 
man, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Muslim background. And my work as co-founder of a feminist organization in a very conservative patriarchal society like Sierra Leone. So I know part of the conversations. Every time I uh, talk about my identity, people ask about backlash and the idea of male backlash. I just want to say again as a framing thought that um, we know our purposeful. The reason we take a movement building approach to our work, the reason we we invest in girls and girls groups and activists is that you cannot sensitize social change. You cannot hold sensitization workshops. Typically the instinct is, oh, let's talk to the men, let's sensitize them. That's not how, you know, nobody with power voluntarily gives up that power just because they have been sensitized. So in our work and in experience, we've seen that that does not work. Yet you can create opportunities for conversations and look for potential people who already see, you see progressive signs and create opportunities to reinforce those progressive signs backed up by organized activists who are resourced in the ways that they want to be resourced. That's what will lead to both the progressive change that we seek, but also creates more inroads for men like me and other men to be part of this conversation. So I think I'm going to stop there for to start as provoking thoughts and i look forward to hearing as well from from others thank you thank you so much turner it's brilliant already in such a short space to hear how you're seeing these uh barriers in this really important work in sierra leone and your personal role in that um so wonderful now I would like to welcome Nolene Nambilovu, who is joining us literally from the other side of the world in Fiji, where I believe it is 1 a.m. Um, so we're extremely grateful to have her. She is executive director of, of Diverse Voices and Action for Equality. She is also part of other wider social movements, including Women Defend the Commons Network and the Pacific Feminist Community of Practice. Um, so we'll be thrilled to hear about all her experiences. Before it gets even later for you, Nolene, um, please do share your reflections on some of the main barriers women's movements face. Of course, one example is the time zones of many of these convenings. So um, please, we're, we're excited to hear from you. Thanks very much, um, Rachel and everyone. Uh, I hope you can hear me okay. I think I'm all right. Um, so thank you. I'm enjoying the session already. So I just wanted to be clear um, where we are. When, when someone at the moment is asking me, you know, where are the real barriers, um, not just to feminist and women-led autonomous movements, but, you know, in, in work for justice, it's everywhere, right? So we have just these entrenched racist, um, heteropatriarchal, neoliberal, extractivist, um, what I call radical capitalist um, systems, and they're driving um, these crises, these multiple crises, and they're stalling uh, and trying to slow um, global sets of work for justice, including those by feminist social movements, and they assault us. They assault us internally, externally, um, individually and in collectives. And the second point I'd make is that we didn't get here unnoticed and we're not unclear on what's happened um, as you know, we just heard from Chinor, um, I hope I pronounced it right, on, on where, this, where this comes from historically, you know, the guns, the germs, the coal, the steel, they all propel the coloniality, um, a white supremacy and an imperialism. And we're still paying the price 
of that inhumanity and that coloniality continues today. It's there in white supremacy and racism. It's in eco-imperialism, taking resources from certain places and transferring them. We even see that in the, in the um, climate change movements by this idea that you can carbon trade your way out of this ecological crisis that we're in, um, as if that's enough. We see it in the debt and vaccine inequities around in the refusal of major carbon polluter countries to provide the agreed, already agreed climate finance um, and a loss and damage facility. I mean, the loss and damage work, there's over 100 countries and only a small group of countries that are um, trying to block us in that work. And, and we, what we're saying as a loss and damage coalition is, and this is precisely why I think we need to have these mass movements, um, is that a small group um, just because they hold a particular kind of economic power can't stop um, the, the, the work of the entire world against that, um, the majority world. Um, it's there in maldevelopment, in conflict hotspots, but it's also there in my region, for instance, we have among the highest per capita rates of violence against women and girls and against um, LGBTQI um, A plus people. It's in persecution and non-inclusion of local and indigenous communities. And we're seeing that in terms of our, um, our uh, eco-feminist excuse me, work right now, and the massive poverty and inequality we're seeing um, within and between countries. Uh, debt injustice, manifestations of, you know, heteropatriarchal um, and, and unjust economic systems. Okay, so, so we know that's where we are. Um, and, and one of the things I think that I always feel as a, you know, as a feminist who's trying to do the work of being there and present and in my community and in my constituency in a climate frontline state like Fiji, and you're also trying to make those connections from local to global. And I really love, I often quote um, the work of um, Coalition of African Lesbians who talks about us as the, as the global um, and the small elite communities in Geneva or London or Switzerland or wherever it is London City um, as as um, the local uh, as the as the local so you know like uh, as the global sorry that we we are the ones who um, who should be defining what um, development is I, I really love that um, and the second thing I'd say is that um, just stop me when I've gone um, on enough Rachel but um, part of the things that we're trying to do is to say you know uh, our politics and the way that we make meaning, the, may, the way that we are made and keep making ourselves is really important and whether we have the space to do that. So for us, we started 10 years ago as a, as a local um, collective that was on like $10 a month in transport allowances. And, and since that time we have worked and we have worked with feminist funding organizations and we have tried to be honest and open about where that has and has not worked for us. And I think that's really important for movements because money becomes one of the main things that defines whether or not you have bodily autonomy and integrity, whether or not you can move. Um, and so there have been times when we've had to say no. And it's very difficult to say no because you have so many things that you are, are trying to do, things that sets of work that you're trying to do. But if you are not able to do that, 
um, if the politics is not in place sufficiently so that you can say the no's as much as the yeses, then you end up in this flow um, that, that is a polluted stream and you end up somewhere where you didn't think you would begin um, 10 years ago. But I do want to say about that, that it's very difficult for us as feminists to often stand up to those who are closest to us, to our accomplices, because that then is about the realities of feminist uh, movement building here in, you know, in 2022. Is that what we are doing is always working in two worlds we're in the middle of a patriarchy that has its that that we have to wash off ourselves every day so there's you know the endless mind-numbing work that we have to do to please those who are providing us with funds or to make sure that we are uh, uh, doing a maximum um, set of work on both the material and the structural we are making all those political discussions and to me what we end up doing is carrying a lot of the both the intellectual burden but also the emotional burden of of um, of the politics of feminist movement work and i want to say that if we are going to make recommendations from this session then what it should be about is about all of the changes that we have to make in terms of honest renegotiation with each other, whether it's within the economic South and being able to critique and auto critique, or whether it is about South and North um, uh, relationships. Because one of the things I still see right now is because we're in this urgent moment, because we're in a moment where actually it's an ecological and a climate emergency, that what we're doing is we're playing some of those kumbaya politics and we're, we're, we're again trying to kind of cover over those cracks that actually are about the old systems. So if we, it is about the old systems, about racism and heteropatriarchy and about um, maldevelopment and about hyperdevelopment, you know, in my region, Pauline, we have en endless, yes, thank you. We have endless numbers of institutions um, and we've got to move to a new kind of organizing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nolene. This is absolutely, um a shame to not have more time, but we will have time to explore this as well. Um, the issue of sort of unfair and inflated strength or voice of particular groups and that need for honest renegotiation is really well heard. We're getting lots of comments, so I do hope we can continue this very shortly um, and hear more from you. Um, so next we are sort of whizzing through so we can hear from Ruth um, and then open the discussion. Ruth Zerbergen is um, from Socoristas and Red. She is an activist and feminist researcher in the collective La Revuelta de Neken and of course in Socoristas and Red, uh, working in Argentina on reproductive rights since 2010. Um, Ruth, I believe, will be speaking in Spanish, and um, so please do use this interpretation function and do share with us your experiences on the issues of feminist organizing um, and the barriers faced, and uh, including your experiences of the Green Tide movement in Argentina. So over to you, Ruth. Thank you so much. Hola. Hello, good morning, everyone. Good morning for me in this part of the world. I am at a, in a province in the Patagonia in Argentina, the south of this country. The first thing that I would like to say is that I feel that all the, always all the past was worst for women and the movement of gender and uh, gender movements of the differences. We are right now in a time when the impact of the different feminisms in the daily life, in the political agendas, in the mobilization, social mobilization is evident. 
So we have uh, gone through a path of organizing that makes the impacts to be felt. And we can feel them in the dinner table. I mean, we can hear it, we can see it, we can per uh, perceive them. Now I'm wondering, if we've been able to do that with difficulties and the access to resources, how much more could we be doing if we would have access to resources without so many barriers as they already named the other uh, two uh, people that uh, spoke before me? What do I think about the access to resources that sometimes the distribution of the resources is tied uh, tied up to systems with colonialist systems with criteria that are kind of like looking for results looking for outcomes to this project you you have to find this outcome for these projects as if changes were easily visible so what I'm wondering, when it comes to funding distributions, how much of those uh, criteria get instilled that are part of domination systems? And I'm saying this because uh, the access to resources should be uh, of a larger scope. They should be systematically uh, based on the trust and the dialogues. And I'm saying the trust and dialogues because we are placing the very evidence, the capacity of transformations that these movements have. And the last thing I would like to say is that that uh, systematization would give us stability to think about the professionalization of activism, to professionalize activism as we can think of, uh, you know, working for organizations and to be recognized and acknowledged as a job and no less than a voluntary action. I want to close saying that in Argentina, for instance, we are a network of about 500 activisms that we accompany uh, women that need to go to an abortion and 98% of those activisms work as a volunteers. And then how much do we criticize the systems that care or work is uh, are non-paid and we do that in the movements and this is not acknowledged recognized when we think about the, uh, the distribution of funding so that's what i would like to say to start this conversation ruth thank you so much and to our brilliant panelists already so much to think about and reflect on i mean just as a quick Initial thought, this idea of trust, dialogue, and radical rethinking is throughout all of the comments so far and seems to be so central to what needs to be really invested in. And also the idea of visible and invisible work um, and invisibility in all of the dimensions of what's um, truly driving change. So with that, um, we will open the floor to the audience. We can't wait to hear all of the reflections and for everyone to take part in the discussion. Um, so again, please use the function to raise your digital hand. If you have any questions about that, do put it in the chat to make sure we can hear from you and share your reflections on the barriers faced and um, these uh, you know, amazing, exciting reflections so far, how that might uh, resonate with your own work. 
I will maybe take two or three contributions at a time um, and then throw it back to the panel so we can respond and hear from as many of you as possible. Um, so Sarah Roma is the first one. Over to you, Sarah. I'm not sure, yeah, if Sarah can hear us. Um, excuse us, we're just trying to make sure this function works so we can hear from everybody. Um, if not, I have some questions as privilege of chair if, if it's possible, but um, I'm just waiting to make sure my colleagues have tried to have Sarah's. Okay. Um, we do have a question from Inez, so maybe I'll start there. Inez has asked, um, no, oh, someone is speaking. Sorry, we're working out the kinks here. Let's start with a question from Inez. Inez has asked, um, I'm sorry, I'm Apologies, everyone. Inez has asked, Nolene, can you please say more about what you called working in two worlds? Over to you, Nolene. Sure. Um, I, I think one of the um, one of the things that we have to do every day, you know, it's really, really difficult to do the work in whatever context we're in. Right. There's the joy of organizing together. Um, and but the minute that you open your mouth um, in many contexts, you are inviting someone to be um, in your face about their um, about maybe their displeasure with what you're saying. And, and I live in a context where the minute that a young woman particularly starts to raise her voice, even online, let's say, right, you make one post on a Facebook page and you have cousin brothers and uncles and fathers and uh, maybe mothers and aunties as well who are immediately there um, because we're a very big collective and we have large kinship networks. And um, so there are many who will then um, make sure that you know um, that that's not your place to raise your, your voice. And so anyone who takes on this role as women human rights defenders or as feminist activists, you're living with that. And, and this thing about living in two worlds is you're living with that every minute of your life. Um, so you might come to work into a safe environment, but the minute that you're out of there and you're in the world, um, you're, you're dealing with an assault that is mental, that is physical, um, and often will cost you your life. So if we know that, in terms of feminist activists around the world, then our, you know, our duty of care to each other is to make sure that we understand those realities, that when we ask those things like, and I have to say, you know, it's as simple as things like time justice. It is about things like when you have to be on meetings and who needs to take those really poor meeting times and who doesn't, um, who gets to make those decisions. It's about who decides whether you know, someone gets core funding or doesn't and, and only gets project-based funding. That's why we only take feminist funding now. We don't take any bilateral funding anymore. And that's because we can't afford the conditionalities that come with that. And it's, it is this thing of living in two worlds, of being able to say, I'm in a patriarchy. It feels like I'm in the sludge. It's difficult today to even get up, but I'm going to find collectives that are safer we can't say safe, but that are safer and that are creative and joyous and but also are really re 
real about how hard it is to do this work because I think um, the fact that we come into these spaces and and we find the ways to speak to everyone um, in English, you know, rather than in vernacular, make people think that many of us are okay, but we're not okay. And feminist movements need to think about the many ways around the world that that um, South feminists, particularly, and those with intersectional identities, are not okay right now um, and have to be nurtured um, and 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 co-create this new world now and I really think that's what Ruth and others are talking about you know there's still a hell of a lot of volunteerism and people who are unpaid for this incredible sets of work they do and and as much as we can say we support them it's often a very small core that are supported and then we are trying to then build movements they say base build do your work build the movements yes agree but women are trying to fulfill you know their their needs we have 99 percent of my constituency network who at the moment can't even feed themselves because we're in the middle of the third wave of, of a COVID pandemic and we're in a climate frontline state so those realities are daily realities and we are also visionary we're looking towards a, a future that is that is just and real and beautiful. So two worlds Thanks. and more. Thanks. Thank you so much, Nolene. This idea of multiple worlds is absolutely um, uh, powerful. This is a, a brilliant way to frame it. Thank you so much. And we have a contribution from Amido. I hope I'm allowing you to use your microphone. Um, please do speak to the speak to the panel. Amito, over to you. Hello. Hello, Amito, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you clear. Please, can you make your comment or question? Yeah, uh, thank you so much, um, Joyce Amito. Uh, from South Sudan, Eastern Equatorial State. Uh, we have an organization which is a feminist organization and women-led organization. Uh, we are working in the area of uh, protection, that is gender-based violence on women and girls. Uh, for us here, it is really very rampant on girls and women. For women, there is high rate of domestic violence uh, among the intimate partners, violence in the house. And uh, for our young girls, there's also a lot of issues uh, concerning uh, early and forced marriage. You find that the majority of girls get married at the age below 18 years. And these marriages can come when they are forced to this marriage. And this is due to cultural norms and beliefs. And this is what the, the women led in Eastern Equatoria. We are, we are really working hard in this area. But uh, you find a lot of challenges surrounding us for us to really carry out our activities. Uh, there is inadequate funding. We have less access to funding. So that you find that most women led, they are still coming up to really look for how to address the issues of injustice uh, on women and girls. So basically, this is what we are having 
We are having a network for women-led in Eastern Equatoria, and we are trying to do the network with other women-led in other states. But the issue is the funding. So this thank is you. basically uh, this is what is facing us. Amito, thank you so much. It's really powerful to hear the networks you're building and all of the work you're doing on GBV, despite feeling these really intense pressures around not having adequate funds. Um, I don't know if uh, perhaps Chernor or Ruth have any initial reflections you'd like to share to, to Amito and everyone. Well, um, if I may, I just want to uh, thank you, Amito, for your intervention. I also wanted to, if, if, if I'm allowed to uh, talk about the cooperation of language, because that's something we uh, think about a lot as well in the work that we do and we experience. So at Purposeful, we're very explicit a, but about our feminist identity about the work we do and the political nature of the work that we do. We do not talk about empowerment. We talk about building power, building girls' power and finding power and organizing power and transforming power. When we talk about access to resources and uh, uh, we, we're explicit about naming it as redistributing power and redistributing resources so that girls have access to the resources that then leads to organizing and building that power that they need to challenge the oppressive structures um, that Nolin just uh, really spoke about, and that's the experience and I think Amito is also alluding to. But what I wanted to point out as well about the harmful nature of that is that language, the, the questioner is right. It's a language that is indeed co-opted, and it's a language that is co-opted without an examination and an appreciation of the political angle of it. So you hear that everybody now all of a sudden refers to themselves as you know, they're doing feminist work, gender work, but have almost zero interest in addressing complex power issues. And uh, you know, even in our engagements with donors, you know, there's a question about colonized, the colonized donor mentality. So we start our engagement, and I really like, uh, Nolene, your point about being intentional about the donors you choose to work with now and, and being in that, in that space. That's part of conversations we're having at Purposeful as well in terms of what resources we can afford to accept, because it's not just uh, the resources that you, uh, you're willing to, but as you said, I really like the way you framed it about we can't afford to accept this resource because it goes not just against who we are, but it's basically it undermines the work we do and it takes us back even in, in, in those efforts. So you have these relationships with donors. You clearly state that a, we're feminists and we always say we mean that, it's who we are. The work we do is about building power. We are about redistributing power and redistributing resources so that girls and allies can do that. And they say, oh yes, 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 yes. But then they expect you in terms of the actual way the relationship works to quickly readjust to a very colonized way of doing things where, again, you're the recipient, you're there, you're supposed to now, again, put all these burdens on all the things that you have done in your analysis that you know actually hold girls behind and make it impossible for them to have access to resources to be able to imagine, radical imagination, which is so critical in this work, the space 
and the right to fail, which is something we talk about all the time, are purposeful. The idea that, you know, you're poor, you're female, you do not have the rights to fail. And therefore, they have to put in place all these structures and the systems. So I, 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 I really appreciate that point about how harmful the cooptation of language, but it's not just language, it's also the discourse. It goes beyond just the expression of the language, but really into the discourse and how that discourse is manifested. Thank you so much, Turner. Before we turn to Ruth, it would be great to be hear hearing from all the panelists. I just wanted to remind our audience to please you raise your hand to speak directly. We really encourage and would be excited to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, I do have two really interesting questions in the panel box, which we will get to. Um, and I saw a hand go up, which we're definitely welcome to come in now. Um, yes, Siham, Rashid, please do intervene. Okay, hi, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, thank you very much for this discussion and the opening panel. There is so much information and I just feel it's just so powerful, honestly, um, to discuss together, to be on the same. I feel there is a joint agenda. Um, I did have a question for Sharon, Shanor, Shanor, I'm sorry. Uh, Shanoi, you spoke about donor colonization, and I think it is a very big issue. Um, and I think it's so vital to actually unpack this. And you just spoke about this right now in terms of language and the discourse. It is a big part of it. But I think also unpacking part of it, for example, I live in the, in the occupied Palestinian territory. I think a part of this is as well, for example, um, accountability uh, among donors, you know, on the one hand, we support feminist movements, on the other hand, you know, we don't hold uh, accountable, you know, governments who violate the very, the very basics, you know, of, of uh, women's rights. At the same time, there's support to, you know, to governments, again, without accountability, uh, there is a lot of support towards well-established non-governmental organizations as opposed to grassroots organizations and community-based uh, organizations who I feel now, honestly, that there's a, a, God, there's a huge uh, distance between, um, so you have the donor, you have the NGO, and then you have the CBOs or or informal movements or community-based organizations, there is a huge you know, space between the donor and the communities and it's being filled in by NGOs. And donors are not really pushing to go to the community and to, to hear from them. So yeah, I, I think this needs actually a lot of unpacking. You know, this is one of the layers of, of colonization. You know, you have occupation, you have donor and, and others. So I think it's it's so vital to unpack in, in its full discourse. Thank you. Siham, thank you so much. Um, Cherno, I'd like to hear your reflections, but I do want to bring in Ruth if that's okay first, and then we'll go around. Um, Ruth, we have a few questions, so you're welcome to respond to Siham's uh, question. We have another one also asking about the professionalization and NGOization of 
uh, movements. It's something we see a lot in this space. And I wondered if you could reflect on if you see that weakening feminist activism that is otherwise fueled by energy, joy, and volunteering. That is uh, what our um, attendee raised. Or if you could speak any further to your experience um, in Argentina with your movement. Eh, no, escuché un poquito mal, pero creo que interpreté la pregunta. Eh, cuando me refiero a profesionalización, lo que vivimos con una recarga enorme porque el activismo tiene que bueno, sostener su existencia también y a veces es las ocho horas del trabajo remunerado para, para la sobrevivencia material de su vida más el tiempo que dedica al activismo nos cuesta a veces pensar que la centralidad del tiempo tiene que estar dedicada al activismo si queremos movimientos fuertes, transformadores, entonces eh, le llamo profesionalización a esto de poder vivir salarialmente también del activismo sabiendo que allí corremos algunos riesgos y el riesgo es a veces, si se siguen con ciertos modos de distribución del dinero y de rendición de cuentas, el riesgo es a veces volvernos como, eh, o sea, caminar siempre sobre esa cornisa donde parece que tener fondos, por un lado, nos recarga las tareas, pero por, pero por otro lado, es necesaria. Es una cosa digo yo, porque vamos dando pasos, ¿no? Y a veces parece que nos caemos dedicando mucho tiempo a eso. Y nos decía que el hacer fundamentalmente corrosivo, sospechoso, revolucionario, que tiene que tener este, nuestros movimientos. Le digo profesionalización muy entre comillas y lo digo también hablando desde un lugar, desde un país que está eh, completamente asediado por los fondos públicos, por los fondos internacionales, por el aumento de la pobreza, por los acuerdos con el Fondo Monetario Internacional y la deuda tiene consecuencias materiales sobre la población en general, sobre las mujeres en particular, sobre las travestis, trans, lesbianas, también en particular. Entonces, eh, me parece que tenemos aquí algunos desafíos. Para que donantes entiendan que la distribución de fondos tiene que ser distinta con otros criterios, me parece a mí, con criterios, diría, me animo a decir, menos extractivistas. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you so much, Ruth. I know that we had some interpretation challenges there, so we will be putting notes where we can, but Ruth was explaining the big heavy burden of work, the idea of having to work eight hours to survive and then turn to activism and how this is uh, experienced in different uh, actual functional means of formality or informality um, and so-called professionalization. 
um, and the funding being to really respect and understand that experience. Um, so some notes hopefully will follow. So we have a lot of burning questions, not a lot of time. Um, we had this uh, really great um, intervention from our colleague uh, in the audio to Chernor. We have a number of related questions around um, ecosystems and violence. Um, so I suppose I might have Chernor and Nolene give some quick responses, if you can, to some of those questions. We also had a question about the role of men coming through, um, which I know Chernor spoke on, but perhaps uh, both of you would have some comments on that. Um, so it's a little open-ended, but pieces you can pick up are welcome. And then I believe we have another potential audio introduction. So Chernor first, and then Nolene. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, really enriching. Thanks for all those questions and, and thoughts and comments that are that are, are coming in. Um, I, I really appreciated the conversation around the role that colonization plays, uh, coloniality continues to play. It's really central, and, and I think for a very long time as a sector, it's been very unwilling to address this, and there are reasons for that. A, obviously, the, 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 uh, an easy succeeds the most when you don't even talk about it, because then it becomes kind of just second nature and everybody assumes that's how it's supposed to be, right? But we all kind of live under the, the weight of it. And even the perpetrators of this system themselves are not particularly even fully aware of kind of the role that plays. But you just have to take a close look at the assumptions that underline the systems. The idea that, for example, as a Serbian, somebody's doing me a favor when they give me money, that it's charity, you know, that, oh, look, poor us, or, and that's even worse, obviously, if you're giving it to um, 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 feminist activists who are unregistered, who are, um, you know, I mean, way worse if it's LGBTQI community. So that, and then the, the, the question of, as you mentioned, trust, what levels of trust underpin the system, and then race. And it's often unstated. Somebody just mentioned here as well, kind of uh, how the resources are spent on salaries. It's not just salaries. It's also the salaries hierarchical. It's based purely, almost entirely, on a racist notion of who has access to knowledge and which knowledge is valued. And what we're trying to do, basically, is to recreate systems that replicate colonial structures. So a good, a good NGO were in a conversation and, and one of these uh, middle level NGOs said, you know, but we worked with all these other NGOs for four or five years and now they too can have access to EU money. And I was like, that's the, you're not listening. That's the problem. It's you're creating a clone of yourselves. And with all the resources that you spend, you have not really transformed society. And because this money is not intended to transform society, it's not intended to liberate anybody. In fact, it's the opposite. It's intended to keep you captivated and where you are. And, 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 and so the, the system, you know, the lack of trust, the idea of, um, oh, we're going to come, uh, you know, do spot checks and fill visits and check on you. So when we have relationships, when we give resources out, again, we really work with the groups to understand that we, it's a privilege for us at Purposeful to be, um, custodians of these resources, but we're redistributing that resource and redistributing power and giving you the freedom and the idea that you can move on with this resource and do what you want to do and explore for yourselves. And that's the foundation of liberation because that's also critical in the work that we do. So um, I, I, I think we can go on and on, particularly about the question of um, the role coloniality continues to play and how central it is in terms of who has access to power, resources, and how that plays out, but I will I will stop um, on that and, and give Nolene a chance as well. I see we have a lot of questions. Thank you, Chernor. Nolene, over to you. 
Oh, I love this conversation. I'm enjoying it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's refreshing and we need them. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we're talking about is we have to do this work to kind of challenge our own ideas and, and keep it about lifelong learning. Um, and that's where I think maybe I wanted to, to say two things. Um, if we're going to do differently and we're going to do better together as movements, then one of the things I want to ask people is, are we taking a look at our own politics and the politics of how we move with each other? Like, are we really spending time to look at that? And are we comfortable in our discomfort? Because what I'm finding is it's very difficult to raise issues of um, teacher and learner reformation, you know, like how do, how do we actually share knowledge with each other? Um, how do we create spaces? You know, I agree with Chenor that when we talk about empowerment, we're really using definitions that maybe haven't come from movements. So we take, it's not just others co-opting our language, it's us co-opting from the language of capitalism and heteropatriarchy. So how do we be careful when we are, you know, using that language and it becomes part of the language that we talk about all the time. And it's not just about log frames, but everything else that we commodify in the way that we work. And then I wanted to say, you know, like, this issue around doing work on um, on gender-based violence, thank you for the question. And for us as a lesbian and um, bisexual transgender-led organization in the Pacific, one of the things that I would say, one of the tips is don't, don't, don't dumb ourselves down to what is acceptable within movement organizing. So if we need to be able to name ourselves in multiple ways when we walk into rooms, we've always said in the Pacific, we, we, will, we will never be invited just to be your token lesbian in the room. So if we have issues, we've become, we, we've tried to become experts and we've done the work ourselves on understanding climate and on understanding economics and on working out all of those things that disrupt our own lives and disrupt other, um, other people's lives, right, in our communities. So if we've done that work, then we want to be taken seriously in the rooms on that. And if you won't take us into the room as a whole person, then we will wait outside that room and we will create another room and we will do our work in there. And then if somebody else can be in that room good on you but the, the biggest lesson for for us lately has been think about loss and damage facility people don't want to pay for it in rich countries and i was told even by feminists within the movement don't use the language of loss and damage we are now at 100 plus countries who are talking loudly and deliberately about loss and damage facilities because we have to because that's the reality of where we are right now and if we had listened to those who told us dampen it down a bit we wouldn't even have a chance to get it at cop 27 so i think that for oh, us is you. part of being a feminist is the perseverance um, in your politics thanks Thank you, Nolene, so much. We've heard about uh, this real challenge of co-optation and tokenism, the idea of loudness and the idea of being comfortable in our discomfort and this idea that, you know, 100, you know, 100 countries isn't enough and the biggest spaces aren't doing enough. So how do we really create a change? Um, I'm afraid we're really up on time and it's been such an inspiring conversation, which of course shows we need more of these conversations. Um, we have uh, hopefully a little moment for maybe 60 seconds soundbite. I'm so sorry to do this to our three wonderful panelists. I know you've already shared so much and there's more that could be said, um, but if you could encapsulate how this discussion is leading you to think or any sort of final reflections in a quick 
short intervention. We would love to hear it. Um, Ruth, let's start with you. I believe we fixed our interpretation problem. If there's any issues, just bear with us. Um, and then uh, Chernor, and then we'll end with Nolene. Thank you, Ruth. Some quick re final reflection. I wanted to say that these are very auspicious, these dialogues. I think that we need to consume more collective programs and global action programs. And also to say that we need to change the world because the world it is uh, damaging and is provoking suffering. So welcome the reaction, the feminist reaction that is a sense sensitive reaction uh, facing the difficulties of this world and to continue organizing from those perspectives along with other movements. Thank you so much, Ruth. That's very powerful. Chernor, over to you. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. Um, I want to say that money is power and at the heart of this conversation that we're continuing to having, uh, we have to always think about the role that money plays, who has access to it, who has control over money and who has the rights to you know, use that money, fail with that money, experiment with that money. And oftentimes girls and LGBTQI and non-binary groups are seen as particularly, you know, should be removed from that um, entirely. Even with particularly the, the shifts, the uh, power conversation, the so-called localization conversation, what we have seen happen, and I think this needs to be called out, particularly for activist groups, because the intent of that was to move resources, move money, so that local groups, those who are organizing in the front lines, have access to resources. But what's happened instead is the system has reorganized itself, and you have the major players, they cheat the system. They come back and they register as local organizations now, and then, then they double counts. They have access to the money, their headquarters organizations, and then they also become. So there's no transformation that's happening. But what the way we challenge that, the way we push back on that, is exactly by finding opportunities to resource and help groups, activist groups, organize and have access to unrestricted money so that they can build their own power. That has to be at the heart of this conversation. And we should be, we should be willing to continue to challenge the status quo, to be loud, to push back, and, and to be uncomfortable ourselves, even as we push back and make everybody in the room uncomfortable. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Chernor. Discomfort, experimentation, and risk. These are very loud and uh, absolutely powerful conversations. Nolene, over to you. In, in 2050, they're saying that 30 to 50% of species won't be around anymore. They'll be extinct. Um, many of the countries in climate frontline states, including small island states, won't even exist anymore because a lot of ours will be underwater um within a hundred years and that's on us you know that's that's because of all of these coloniality um based systems um and we've got to change it and so feminists know that we know the scale um, of what we're trying to do and so if we are spiky and difficult that's because we have to be because we're trying to really work together to to shift this so that we survive and thrive so um, let's continue to be spiky and political. Thanks. 
Thank you all so much. Uh, the spikiness uh, word I, I hadn't heard as an analogy and it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, Nolene also mentioned this idea of rethinking the teacher and learner. I think that really should stay with us and make us think about power, about what is seen as loud, what is visible and invisible, and clearly a need for lots more of these conversations. So we are incredibly grateful to all of you in the audience, these fantastic speakers. Um, at ODI, we have our aligned platform, as mentioned, we have some reports coming out. We're also really hoping to produce a map of feminist movements around the world. We hope to collaborate with you all to try and help uh, bridge connections, make these voices louder, and make visible the invisible. Um, so I would like to unfortunately close the session. I wish we had more time and invite you to our next session. Um, we will be moving to our final session of the day. So um, I would invite our fantastic panelists from this session to switch off their webcams and mics. We'll set up the next session to refresh the panel, which is going to be amazing. So please um, let us, we'll take a minute or two, take a quick comfort break, grab water, coffee if you need, and we will be getting started very shortly. Thank you all so, so much. Hello everyone, uh, if I could invite the panellists for this next session to turn on their videos please.
we'll just take a moment for that to happen and then we'll kick off the next discussion. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, I hope everybody has had a chance to use the loo and get us get yourselves a drink. Um, take a bit of a, a moment to refresh your eyes from the screens. It's a huge pleasure to welcome you back to ODI's Global Dialogue on Unlocking Feminist Activism. My name's David Watson. I'm the Director of External Affairs here. And in that capacity, I work with all of our research teams on external engagement strategies and policy influencing. This final session is about solutions, which is partly why I think I was asked to moderate as part of my role here is helping our researchers and policy analysts to translate evidence and ideas into clear propositions and recommendations. So having reflected at some length on the challenges and opportunities and heard some really powerful interventions from uh, the speakers and participants so far today, we'll now be focusing squarely on what new funding and support models are needed from the international community to sustain effective grassroots activism. So like the previous sessions, this is a conversation. So I really do encourage you to contribute. This is a, a safer space as we can make it. Um, so please do raise your hand using the, the icon function at the bottom of Zoom or type your question or your contribution into the Q&A box. So also just like you've been doing before, please feel free to use the chat for networking to share information or, or to reflect, but we won't be mining the chat box for questions. So if you have questions, please do raise your hand. We really do want to, to hear from you and, and invite you to join the dialogue. And then lastly, just on housekeeping, uh, please do continue to tweet and amplify the conversation on social media using the hashtag feminism unlocked and remember to tag at ODI global. So I'm, Delighted to welcome uh, our next set of panelists who are going to help us uh, kick off the discussion by reflecting a little bit on the conversation so far and helping us to navigate towards some potential solutions. So welcome to Francoise Modut, who is a pan-African feminist from Cameroon and the CEO of the African Women's Development Fund. The, the Eight, uh, eight, eight, I'm just going to do, do, do all the introductions first, Francoise. 
sorry to 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 not um uh to not introduce that but i'm gonna just say a little bit about all of our panelists and then i'm gonna hand over uh to each of them to to say a few words apologies that's my fault so francoise is the CEO of the African Women's Development Fund. The AWDF supports women-led civil society organizations in Africa promoting women's rights. Uh, Pamela Valenzuela is a spokesperson for uh, Coordinadora Feminista 8M, a leading feminist organization in Chile uh, that organizes the 8th of March International Women's Day demonstrations and the annual feminist strike. Uh, Unesa Arabi, who is co-founder of the Noon Feminist Movement, a young journalist based in Sudan who has witnessed how women led the revolution in Sudan over the last few years. And Mohamed Nasiri, who is regional director for Asia and the Pacific and special advisor to the uh, executive director of UN Women. Huge thanks to all of you for, for, for joining us today and helping us to kick off this second part, uh, this second uh, interactive dialogue. So our speakers like before will start us off and then I'm gonna open the discussion and I'll invite all of you to join the conversation. So please be thinking of uh, any questions or reflections that you might want to feed in uh, and really encourage you to, uh, to come in and, and speak up and join the discussion. So first of all, uh, Francoise is going to talk to us a little bit about um, some of the lessons and examples around overcoming barriers uh, and, and some alternative institutional funding models. So Francoise, uh, first of all, over to you. Good afternoon. I hope you can hear me well, so we have had some challenges, but hope it's working. Uh, thank you again uh, for the invitation and, and David, thanks for the kind introduction. Um, and I really want to thank you all for creating a space for us to talk about the power of uh, feminist, feminist activism and, and for including a conversation about funding as part of it. And uh, the question about what new funding and support models are needed to, to, to sustain grassroots activism, I find very interesting, especially today. And I, wa I want to uh, start by admitting that today in particular, I'm, right, I'm just speaking from a place of deep anger and disappointment. And I'll tell you why. Just a, a few days ago, um, we were all celebrating Senegal's first win at the African Cup of Nations, right? I don't care much for football myself, but you know, I'm always here for black joy. So I was all really, really into it. I, I was delighted to see the images of thousands of fans uh, in the street. And yet this morning we started seeing uh, and hearing and reading the stories of girls and women who were sexually assaulted in that crowd. And those stories were told by really brave African Senegalese feminists who were in that crowd and who heard from uh, the, the, these girls and women and who've been helping them. And I was just so angry. And I was also thinking, these women, these feminists, they're being attacked just, by, just because they said the truth. They're the ones taking the risk. They're the ones taking, doing the work. And yet I know, and that's why I'm really disappointed, that it's going to be really hard for us as funders to support that work that they're doing right now today. So I'm just wondering, what does that mean for us? And, and I, I think 
learning from the, the work of the African Women's Development Funds, um, I think there's a few lessons that we keep learning and that we keep uh, trying to integrate into our work um, about this kind of situations in our world. And I'll be very brief because some of them have been touched on by in the previous, um, in the previous sessions. I think the first thing is that we really need to fund this work, the work of grassroots feminist activists in ways that show how much we care. Because we talk a lot about how much we care, right? We do the sessions, we do, the, we do all, the, all the talking. And that talk is sweet, but the work is really cheap. Uh, we're, talk, we're hearing that earlier from Hakima and Zora that less than 1% is going to those feminists doing the work. And that's for me, I don't know what to add to this. I mean, the, the number says it all. The second lesson is that we do need to fund grassroots feminist activism in ways, and, and Zora was talking about the modalities, and that's what I'm talking about here as well, that we show that we trust them, that we show that they, they, we, we know that it's for them to set the agenda. We know that it's for them to make the decisions. We need to fund them in a way that allows them to react to the situations like the one I was speaking earlier and not be stuck in the frame that we are imposing on them. So um, I think uh, the, the, the notion of flexible funding and funding that allows those organizations to strengthen themselves, to be resilient organizations, regardless of what happens in the world, is also very important. And I want to... to to echo something that the, the Human Rights Funders Network in a recent uh, report called the Trust Gap, especially for Global South-based um, uh, feminist activists, that, you know, that its flexibility is, is a lot uh, better for, for organizations in the Global North than the Global South. So let's think about our biases. And the last thing I'll say is that we need to fund grassroots feminist activists as directly as we can. And sometimes I understand it's not possible. And, and I think I want to echo what Zora was saying earlier about the power and the importance of women's funds, especially in the global South, that come from the communities, that work with the communities and the activists and the movements, and who I believe are really well placed to, to be a, 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 an internet. So I'll stop here because I think I'm at time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Francoise, for those uh, really important opening remarks and, and, and for sharing that awful um, uh, recollection of, of what happened following that football match. So, un, un, so tragically common um, uh, and really something that uh, should make us all stop and think. And obviously solidarity from all of us here today with those brave women and activists who, who spoke up uh, following the, those awful events. Um, Francoise has, has kind of set us a challenge there um, around funding, um, drawing on some of the conversations that we've had so far, including from Zora and others who've spoken about the really quite um, shocking statistics around the uh, amount of funding that is being channeled to grassroots activists. Uh, and the way and the manner in which that funding is uh, is shared uh, and the kinds of strings that are attached. I'm going to ask Pamela to, to, to come in next. 
Um, Pamela is going to talk a little bit about some of the risks involved for feminist movements uh, when they take grants to sustain and expand their work. But Pamela, also please feel free to um, pick up on anything that Francoise or our previous speakers have also said that resonates with you to, to help us as we focus our conversation. Hola, uh, hi to everyone. Uh, I will speak in Spanish. First of all, I would like to thank this invitation to talk about a topic that is obviously very important to be able to address any ch challenge and any strategy that we might have to affect social change from these movements, especially to be able to come to make things come to fruition, things that only happen, uh, whether they're actions or politics and things that we hope for the future. As we obviously we want to have more and more rights and we have to keep thinking of what we could still want. I was able to talk a little bit and hear what the previous session had uh, been discussing and I they started talking about uh, financing and how they were able to support their activities and how they're able to sustain the work that they do and how they have balance all these different uh, work that they have to do we have to make sure that we continue with our with our with our fight and how they interact also with our principles and we also have to reflect on what motivates us to work as a collective as well my name is Pamela Valenzuela. I'm the spokesperson for the Coordinadora Feminista Ocho de Marzo in Chile. We began this road uh, about four years ago. Obviously, this path has become even more intense. We were able to also address our, our, our path and we got together feminists, individuals, collective feminist groups, and we decided to get together to address the March 8th um, demonstrations in 2018. That was our, the first time we got together. It was the first time in many years that on March 8th, the spirit of the manifestations of that day really were a reflection of what we were living as working women and we were think that obviously any work that sustains life is an important work that must be uh, respected, whether they're paid or not. We decided that we needed to focus that work and to see how does that work, is that work carried out? And obviously these are cross-cutting um, aspects that we see to our work. We were able to get together. We got together. We were a feminist, we were women. We were different uh, women from different parts of the country all over Chile. We decided to um, conduct this demonstration uh, to include a, a different uh, nationalities and different parts of the country. Obviously we had a very diverse group of people. We had all members of society be part of these demonstrations. And obviously there was a great um, leadership shown on behalf of the feminist activist uh, movement. So this was a very powerful um, event 
for us, feminism addresses everything. It's not just uh, focused on one issue or another. It really covers all issues. It's cross-cutting issues. For example, we were able to talk with other feminist uh, colleagues who work on housing, because obviously in our country, they say if you're you're a head of a household, but sometimes you might not have, have a house and you're a head of a household. Obviously, we have to address English. Uh, we had, Sorry, we have to address healthcare. We also have women who are workers who work in unions. We know that all kinds of jobs that might be from the informal, formal sectors, whether they're paid or not, uh, people who work in private households. So we're always looking at strategies to see what spaces have not been addressed, but that sometimes we do want uh, to show how important they are. We've been able to uh, talk about informal work. We've been able to talk with groups who work in the environment. And these people are all over the country, but I'll also address um, other issues. I don't want to go on too long, but many of the people that we work with are migrants. Many of them are from uh, different parts of society. There's a violence that's uh, obviously we see uh, gender neutral uh, issues that we have to address because recently we had the we had a, a, the body of a trans woman who was found. And obviously this was a crime that sometimes goes unpunished. So these are issues that we have to address as well. For us, the path that we started on in 2018, on March 8th, would help us to really put uh, our work in perspective and our lives in perspective. Our front line, for example, was to fight for the right and not to just wait for our words to be heard. We obviously know that our work is a political problem. Our lives are a political problem. We lack so many things, and obviously it puts our lives at risk. Whether the world continues, uh, some, some of our colleagues don't have water, for example. Without water, there's no life. And this is one of the crises that we have to address in our country. Pamela, I'm so sorry to interrupt. If you could bring your remarks to a close, please. Thanks. Yes, I'll, I'll conclude shortly. So the many different strategies of uh, financing are, are diverse. We work with microeconomies and we've also used um, our work to work with other feminist organizations. We also have campaigns and we've obviously made political decisions. We've been part of a uh, funds that are used mainly for people who dedicate their life um, to uh, certain jobs that are 24-7. And obviously during the pandemic, we've seen other issues that have arisen because it has given us a challenge of how to help people that need it most. We were able to work on that. And nowadays we are debating how can we finance and be able to help out uh, and have more volunteers because sometimes, because we don't have enough volunteers, we cannot keep doing our work. Thank you, Pamela. Of course, I mean, so much more to be said there. Uh, and I'm so sorry to, so sorry to cut you off. I just want to make sure that we protect time for 
for, for participants to, to contribute to the dialogue. So um, uh, really great to hear about the work of your organization and some of the uh, challenges that, that you have been working locally to uh, address and, and to support and bolster uh, women's movements uh, where you're working most closely. I'm going to um, bring in uh, now, uh, I think, a, Unesa, thank you. Lovely to see you. Glad that you've you've been able to join us. So I'm going to hand over to Unesa now um, uh, for the next intervention. Thank you. Um, hello, um, I'm Unesa, and let me start right away because I we have we don't have a lot of time. Uh, so basically, I'm not going to talk only about uh, my organization or something like that uh, because I think we've done a lot of cooperations with other young, you know, feminists organizations and whatnot, and therefore we share the same struggle, all right? And um, since this is a good chance for me, a good opportunity for me, I have to highlight like, you know, the, what I think um, are the root cause or, you know, a core problems or core issues that people have to shed light into, um, to the funders uh, specifically. So first to begin with, um, the funders have to understand that, um, the nature of the civil society in Sudan and the history of the civil society and the structure of the civil society in Sudan. And uh, ever since, you know, the past 30 years that, you know, and the revolution happened, all of these stages have been affecting the structure, you know, of the civil society and, um, you know, the mechanism of its, you know, uh, functioning. Um, you can see, you can see that uh, before the revolutions, there were like, certain stakeholders, uh, you know, a specific few organizations that uh, let's just say are gatekeeping. Uh, we're now just knew that they are actually gatekeeping the whole resources and they are gatekeeping the cause and everything. Um, and after the revolution, um, more stakeholders emerged, uh, which uh, made it a little bit very complicated that when we were created for like our movement, for instance, uh, more radical feminist movements, um, you know, who actually look at the, you know, the root cause of the issues and start to move in. Like for instance, my movement was created when an SPA, you know, statement was uh, issued and it was literally degrading women and putting us in a stereotype social role, which they literally told us to build the new Sudan. You have to get out the streets, you women and start cleaning the streets. And this is how we literally uh, were born and created by, you know, um, you know, organizing a protest to protest this particular statement. And um, it was really uh, unfortunate because the resistance committee wasn't, committees, committees weren't actually um, cooperating with us. And we felt, it felt like a stab in the back. Um, as you know, then the coronavirus came and then the, the, you know, the constitutional charter came and then the Juba Peace Agreement. And us as young women, we go through you know, I, I, I wasn't one of the people who would believe that there is actually an, you know, a, an intergenerational gap or something like that. Uh, but I would believe that there are people who are gatekeepers and that there are people who are real stakeholders. You get me? So when the funders, you know, go and, you know, let's be clear, like the money that's actually going to be, you know, uh, given to these people is literally like, 
no large and big corporates who are just trying to run from taxes, right? Um, then sometimes the funders are not really aware of the context, all right? And you have to understand that there is no one single, you know, uh, a feminist movement in Sudan. And there, it's literally possible, you know, uh, to be like a one united uh, feminist movement in Sudan because each and every, you know, it's, well, Sudan is a big country and therefore there is like cultural and ethnic diversity, which is actually affects the needs and the, you know, and the structure of, you know, the struggle and everything. Therefore it, it's possible. And I think when a funder is trying to give something to us, they have to put in mind this like context, like, what are you going, who are you going to give and why? And why this is actually an issue? Because as I told you, here in Khartoum, it's different and there is in Darfur is different and there is in Port Sudan, it's different, right? Um, I think it's one of the major things that, you know, uh, people have to put in mind too, because I think sometimes the funders or the NGOization is actually, it reinforces, you know, this central, you know, um, let's just say, okay, when people who just, the people in the center who feel like because they are educated, they are more entitled and whatnot, and that, you know, other people who are unprivileged and they just don't know what they are and they just feel the entitlement of, you know, leading them, which is sometimes they cannot be the people who are able to express their needs, their true needs, and don't, who would actually have the deep understandings of their needs. And also sometimes the funders themselves, um, they just also feel the entitlement of, you know, telling us what do we need. I think listening and doing homework is really very important. And this is what actually from both sides, and this is what actually what is going to make this funding uh, go to its right place and more beneficial because it's so like for me and other, you know, colleagues from other organizations that we've been dealing with and working together, we've seen that we've been suffering from the same struggles that there are just well known, like giving their history, you know, fighting against the fallen regime and whatnot, and that they feel the entitlement of getting all of the resources themselves. And one last thing that I want to say, sorry, I know that I'm, I'm running. One last thing that I want to say, it's, I wouldn't say that women are actually leading because I think it's really not sensitive to other people who could be actually transgender or anything. We don't want to lead the, the revolution. We actually want our participation to be recognized. And to, yeah, I think that's it, if you get what I'm saying. Thank you. Thanks, Unesa, and I'm so sorry to cut you. I mean, we could listen to you and to Pamela and Francoise. I mean, you're fascinating, really. I mean, there's so much in here. We, we, but I, but I want to bring in others to the conversation. So forgive me for, um, forgive me for, for, for cutting you short. Uh, uh, so finally, Mohammed, um, thanks for 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 waiting so patiently. And um, please, uh, you're going to talk. I think. Uh, a little bit about um, the crucial role of international actors in realizing gender equality and justice. Wasn't waiting at all, was intently listening to um, the friends in, in the first session and now, and I really cannot agree more um, with Nolene, with Turner, with Francoise and, and all the friends in the room today. 
um, we do realize and we do know that uh, feminism and, and women's rights uh, are agendas that are uh, the funding of it is chronically low um, across the, the full spectrum. And then when you think about the intersectionality of feminism with other important issues like climate, uh, this funding even becomes uh, lower and lower, even um, almost non-existent at times. And what we need to think about is uh, one, to realize that we, um, whomever is in this room, it would be very naive of us to assume that we can do it on our own. We need partnerships, we need others to come on board, um, not only to finance, but also to partner and to revisit the conditionality of the financing that they have been providing. I, I cannot agree with more with Turner on the conditionality that the donor community is putting on, on the funds. And, and even for um, an intergovernmental agency like UN Women, we are not um, free to, um, to, for example, uh, fund uh, grassroots uh, organizations who do not necessarily have the necessary financial frameworks that are um, imposed on us by, by the donors. So you, you end up going to umbrella organizations or you get to bigger uh, and larger um, entities to, to fund and you rely on them to go into the grassroots level. Um, we, uh, we need to think beyond the governments and we need to think beyond the civil society to look into the financing. and. Um, we, we all, uh, or some of us, participated in Generation Equality last year, which has attempted to bring on board uh, a multi-stakeholder uh, space to, to finance and to partner. But this multi-stakeholder space, we also need to be very clear about how we engage with it, because you do have the private sector, you have the philanthropies, and you need to make sure that they are not coming with the conditionality that would be similar to what some of the governments are doing. Are they coming to fund and then they would also promote their capitalist ideals or do we, uh, do we need to engage with them in a conversation to make sure that they are really responding to the needs on the ground? They are not coming just to put what they need to put forward. So that is an issue that we need to be aware of. So we just not open our hearts and, and hands for any financing that comes, but I believe that we need to have a conversation on uh, why and how and when this financing is being utilized. Um, one um, more issue that we need to also think about is how many governments um, are shrinking the space of civil society. And um, under that, you also have the feminist movements and the women's rights organizations. So we need also to make sure that we also engage with the governments um, in, in a way that would allow the space for voice and choice to, to, to widen. Um, uh, oftentimes we cannot even work in certain countries because we cannot work um, with civil societies there. Um, in other countries, civil society simply does not exist. Um, or uh, they would call that 
the, the quasi-government organizations, they call them civil society and feminist organizations. So we need also to look at, at that aspect of, of the issue and we need to find ways to, to look at it. But moving forward, I believe it's important that we work with others and we find ways to engage with others, but we also need to work um, in an intersectional way because um, the, the silos that we've been uh, working um, in for, for the past decades are not going to cut it. We need to look into the feminist movements across the different generations. Uh, in many countries, those movements are, um, are still controlled among a, a more senior and more seasoned feminists with our hats off to them, of course, but we need to allow the younger um, feminists to come in and to occupy the space. Some others that we need to look at. Yeah. Bring your remarks to a close, thank you. No, I, I will stop here, but uh, intersectionality is an important issue as well, uh, David, that we need to look at. Uh, and back to you. Thank you so much. And I'm so sorry to, to cut you off, as I've said before, I think, I mean, th these, are, these are obviously incredibly important uh, elements that, that all of our speakers are bringing into the mix here, but I'm keen to bring in uh, others. Uh, and I know we've got a hand up already, but um, uh, this really is an opportunity for you to, to participate in, in, in a conversation. So, so we'd encourage others to, to raise your hands and, and, and speak up if you can. Uh, we've got a couple of questions in the Q&A box already around uh, how to make grant the grant making landscape more cooperative, you know, how to, to deal with um, these issues of conditionality and the power play that, that, that plays out through funding and money uh, that so many of our speakers have talked about um, already. Uh, uh, and just uh, our speakers, I'm sure, have been looking at the chat box, but there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of echoing of the of the remarks and the um, the observations that you've been making there. But I really would encourage us. So, what are we going to do about it? So, what's our you know what are the things we're putting on our list and our call to action? We're 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 not far away from the UN um, uh, the, the UNCSW. Uh, we've got the we've got International Women's Day coming. The eyes of the world are are will be on gen the gender equality issue. What are we going to raise our voices on and demand from these fora uh, when, when the powers that be and those who are able to, to make decisions are there. And frankly, those with the, with the money are, are making decisions. So what are we gonna say to them? So um, I've got, um, uh, sorry, forgive me. We've got, I've got Yumna who wants to come in. Uh, Yumna, please. Yes, Yumna, you can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciated what you've all said. I, I, I feel like I need to have a cup of coffee with all of you. Um, Francoise, hi, how are you doing? Um, it's Yumna Hattas. Um, I just want to say, I, this issue of funding is really a big thing for me, besides the fact that we get minus 1% of the global funding. Um, the, the funding at community level is a big problem. If you don't have three audited statements, you don't get any funding. And I have a big problem with that because it's those women that we are preventing access to funds. And it's those women that have the, the, the most intel about what is happening at a community level. And we are preventing them from doing their work. We're actually setting them up for failure. So I have a proposition for them to be building sustainability. I would say if you're giving someone 80,000, 
first of all, just get rid of all of those, um, you know, criteria, selection criteria, because that I understand it's a necessary evil at some point, but really we can help people build that. And so if you're giving them 80,000, 50,000 is towards programming, 50,000 is towards helping build those and handholding and putting those systems in place. So by the time you leave after the two or three years, you actually have nurtured that organization and set them up in a good position where they now have the confidence to go ahead. But if you're going to just say no, because you don't have three audited statements, you're cutting that women off at the knees. And even that less, they're getting less than 1%. So we are actually our worst enemies. So we got to start opening up those doors for women who don't have these systems and need our support. Most, I've been working at the community level and I've been building these trends. I'm telling you, there's nothing. You get 25,000 USD and women don't know how to manage those funds because they just want to do the work and they don't get the money again because they didn't manage the funds properly. So it's the responsibility of the donor who wants to make sure that their funds are not being audited in the wrong way to help those organizations build those systems and take and, and, and build sustainability that way. Thanks, Yumna. That's that's a I think a really important intervention. And I mean, I we're all, all, all almost certain that it costs those donors uh, far more than eighty thousand to go through the motions of uh, the administration that they're imposing on the partners that the objective of that funding is intended to help. So, so there are some administrative and bureaucratic ironies in here as well as just uh, power power imbalances playing out. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for speaking up on that. I have um, Siham and then uh, Nolene who want to come in. So uh, Siham, forgive me, I hope that's the right pronunciation. Please, please, you have the floor. Yes, hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, hi, Muhammad um, and everyone else. Siham Rashid from Palestine. Um, first of all, thank you to ODI for this very, very impressive seminar or sessions. Honestly, I've been a part of many different um, knowledge platforms, learning platforms, seminars, what have you. And by far, to be very honest, this is one of the best. And I think because this is where the grassroots comes in. This is the voice. I mean, ODI has given the voice and the platform for those who are usually not given that voice. So first I wanna thank you for that. Um, you know, we talk about the SDGs and transformative change and, and what have you. This is the big discussion. And like Samira Amin said, you know, there is, you know, we talk about the center and the periphery. I, I believe in, in, in my opinion that, you know, not supporting feminist activists and you know grassroots organizations and CBOs is very, very well planned because this is where the transformation comes from. It comes from these groups. Transformation means changing government policies. It means changing laws. And this comes from the grassroots. This is where mobilization is. Um, and now with just you know NGOs, it's between NGOs and the donors. There's no direct link um, uh, to the grassroots. And just like unions globally, and I think it's so important to tie this in, 
just like unions have been dismantled globally, which was very well planned because they are the voice of the people, whether it's teachers or, you know, whatever. It's, it is the same thing, I think, for the feminist movement. It's a very well planned, um, you know, and a structural issue. So for me, it's, you know, again, keep funding, you know, keep supporting feminist movements. If you want to reach them, you know, you can, you know, you can. Um, and, you know, feminist activists uh, through also informal settings. Not everything has to be done through very well established NGOs who are speaking the jargon that donors are looking for, you know, um, we, we have to get real if we really want to change. Thank you. Thanks, Siham. I think important challenges for us there. And thanks for your kindness at the start. I mean, I think part of this is about, you know, those of us who have the privilege of, of having a platform on some of these issues should be using that platform to give voice to those who uh, are traditionally ignored or, or, or less well represented. So um, we felt it was important for us to do that today. Uh, we've I've got Nolene and I've got some others who want to come in uh, in person. And thanks for, for those who indicate that they want to speak up. We're gonna, we're gonna try and get all of those people in. So I apologize to, to my panel, but I want to maximize the time for, for, for those who don't usually get to speak. So hopefully they'll forgive me for that. Um, so I'm gonna go um, then after to Raquel, Sabrina, Rachel and Nabil, um, uh, but then I'm going to close off the uh, the this the speaking. So um, let's if you could if I could just ask you to try and be brief so that we can get as many people in as possible. Uh, but first, Nolene, please. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Very very briefly to all the panelists, I just wondered, you know, this issue of. Um, the difference between allies and accomplices, and not just from you know what um, what Mohammed um, talked about, but also all of you have really spoken about that. I think Gunyasa as well. Um, I, I wanted to say, you know, how do we how do we push that? How do we not just encourage it, but expect it of each other? That that you know, it's not just the ones who are beside us, but we're going to walk through the fire with each other. You know, if we know that feminist um movements need this support how are we going to do that a little bit more because i think that's also on governments and on un women and on funders and on everyone else um not just us in solidarity within social movements thanks thanks Merlin. we hear that um raquel i i francois uh rachel uh from kenya and I'm a Pan-African feminist uh, human human rights defender. And I'm from a movement called Coalition for Grassroots Human Rights Defenders Kenya. A uh, very interesting panel, I'll say. But my question would be, in terms of also shifting the power, um, to ensure like uh, um, the pr practicality of the funding, the way we are talking in terms of moving from global north to global south, um, how do we shift it in, in terms like, for example, uh, Francois, allow me to use you as an example. Uh, if, for example, your funders are from Global North, but they're giving you restriction, it's hard for you even to, to ensure like the enabling space is there for me from Madari in Islam, running a radical feminist movement that is not properly within the NGO mainstream set up to get resources. How do we ensure that Francois is in Global South has uh, no restriction to be able to give us money that has no restriction? 
because I've realized within most of this discussion, people will say, yes, we give money to informal movements, but after I, I'm talking from my experience, after I, but it's hard to get someone who just give you money. So how do you shift the power from Global North to Global South to the real radical feminists who are doing the real work? I am a young feminist, but also, also like ensuring that we shift that struggle of resources of also intergenerational, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Rachel, and apologies for mispronouncing your name. I had my Spanish head on there for a moment. Uh, so, Sabrina, please. Sabrina, you're on mute. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much to all the panelists for a wonderful discussion. Uh, I'm calling in from Zambia. Just quickly, I wanted to ask, how do we make sure we are supporting all women and in particular with funding and um, other kinds of movement building while not overlooking particular groups of women? So I work with and for incarcerated women and girls and we did a survey of 20, sorry, 34 organizations from 24 countries and five continents and we found that 71% of these groups are not getting funding from funders that identify as women's rights funds or feminist funders. So I'd love to hear ideas and thoughts about how we can particularly make sure we're resourcing and supporting all groups. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sabrina. I, I think Ngabo was next. Uh, please, you have a thought. Okay, thank you, everyone. I don't know if you can hear me well. We can. Okay, me, my major question is, uh, I'm, I'm Michael Ngabo from Uganda. I'm just a student at Macquarie University and I'm doing political science. So my major question uh, is about, like the way I've been seeing here in Kampala, here in Uganda with civil society organizations, them being engaged in activities that actually are against the government uh, things like, or agendas. So my question is, how do you guys uh, uh regulate the people like the organizations that you you're working with because most of them they could be engaged in other activities which are not even uh, in the feminist movement yet you don't know but they portray themselves to be under that movement so how would you guys like uh, harmonize those people thank you so much uh, thank, thanks michael uh, and again apologies for for misinterpreting the um uh, the the uh, sequence of your names there. Um, so, so there's a couple of things, we, we've had some things come through in the Q&A as well, uh, particularly around what lessons and, and advice do speakers have around sort of examples of success in terms of overcoming some of these challenges that we've been talking about uh, here today. We had a question earlier about how, to, how do we encourage uh, a more cooperative landscape and then there is a question actually that's been voted up by by colleagues so i just wanted to to, to put that as well uh, out there around how do we how do we how do we manage and challenge some of the uh, kind of internal um, issues within movements and i think some of our other speakers in the previous panel were, were talking about this as well as well particularly around anti-blackness in so-called feminist movements or around srhr or or indeed as we heard about earlier, some issues with LGBTQI plus and particularly trans um, women's uh, movements as well and, and their place within the broader community. So I think 
these are big questions, obviously. But uh, uh, so I'm going, and I'm sorry, I, I've I've set a I've set a Herculean task for our uh, panel of 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 allies and uh, activists who have been kind enough to put themselves forward to 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 help guide us through this today. So uh, I just ask if each of you would would take a few minutes to, if there's, you don't have to respond to all of the questions, you won't have time, but if there's anything particularly that that you uh, would zero in on, uh, and I just, I guess, ask, we really want to try and move the conversation forward. So if we are going to put out a call to action, what is it that we should be uh, prioritizing there, uh, rather than kind of, uh, I guess, we, we, we sometimes find ourselves ever so eloquently describing in more detail the problems and the challenges but actually what are we going to do about it what are the solutions and so so what would be your clarion call there so I'm going to go in the original order Francoise has been uh spoke spoke very concisely and, and has been patient throughout so I'm going to give you the floor first Francoise and then we'll just go round in order thank you so much and thank you all for the questions um I think it is a, a couple of things uh, that came out that I would like to address. The first one is the question about the, the, the issue of blind spots. And I think several questions I've raised them. Um, Yumna was talking about community, uh, at the community level, and, um, and uh, Rachel was also uh, telling us about what is not, you know, who is not getting support. And I think Siram was saying, you know, where do we find them? And we know where to find them if we're looking. I think, I think it's really important that we recognize our blind spots and some of them are geographical, that entire regions that we never fund. Like nobody funds Central Africa, to be honest. Like who funds Central Africa? And when we say we fund West Africa, we fund West Africa, who is looking at Cap Verde, right? So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, of blind spots. The entire languages we don't bother engaging because it's, it's too, you know, it's too costly to, uh, to, to translate. There is so many blind spots that we have, and we have blind spots, blind spots sorry, uh, in terms of the, the, who are the women we support and who are the women we're not doing enough. So I think just recognizing a blind spot and then having the courage to experiment. Um, we don't know, uh, but we, don't, we will never know until we try. We will never know until we make the contact and we listen and we, we know that we are company instead of trying to find solutions. So David, you're asking about solutions. I think the solutions are with the movements. And I think making sure we listen, we co-create is very important. The second point, uh, and, and the last one for me, is going to be around the importance of flexibility uh, in the funding. I think Mohammed also touched on that. You know, it's, it's, it's and, and Rachel, you, you're really calling us out on this because um, there's so much that we want to do even as feminist funders from the South, that we cannot do because the money is not flexible. So you can't innovate with shackles on your hands. You can't create you know, change if you're so constrained. So for us, at least at AWDF, we see ourselves, yes, we do the funding and we do the best we can with what we have. So for example, we, we care a lot about this institutional strengthening and we make sure that our grantee partners can use up to 50% of our grants to, uh, to, build, to invest in their own museums, right? That's what we can do. But I think we constantly fight our donors to ask for more flexibility. 
not because we want it for ourselves, because we have we are intermediaries, so we pass it on. So I think there's something about being advocates for the movements and advocates for modalities that allow us to support the movement in being as creative, as powerful, as bold as we need them to be for the change to happen. Thank you. Thanks, Francoise. And I mean, I, I, I think there's also, I mean, we, we, we sometimes have this here. I mean, so foundations and philanthropists have kind of surged into the sector and, and you'd think they'd have more flexibility, but they're kind of mimicking the behavior of, uh, of government donors with some of the, um, as Nolene says, some of the shackles that are being applied to this funding, which is hugely disappointing. So, so I mean, I, I think there's there's more that that those of us with with greater agency can do to put pressure on there as well. Um, Francoise, just before we move on, um, there was just a question in there around what are some of the factors that generate success in funder recipient relationships that funders should be mindful of in order to support and sustain feminist groups. Networks and I mean I, I don't know I don't want to answer for you but I would say flexibility is clearly one of them but is there anything that you you would add to that? I think I, I definitely flexibility. I want to add proximity. Make sure that you have people in your in your team who come from the movement or who come from close enough to the movement that they understand the context. I think uh, uh, Unaisa, I hope I'm not mispronouncing your name. She was very strong on understanding the the context. And that means if you're working with young feminists, you need to speak to young feminists and it's best to have a young feminist in your team who knows how to talk to young feminists. If you want to work in West, West Africa with Francophone countries, don't get a, somebody who learned it in university, understands the language, but doesn't understand the dynamics of the movement. So I think proximity and flexibility together. And then when we have, both of them, then you can go and co-create. Again, you know, you can't co-create with people you don't understand, right? So you need to create that proximity, build that flexibility, and I think that helps. Thanks, and, and uh, you know, sadly, I think a bit of colonialism coming in there as well from, from a lot of the traditional uh, donors and, and actors in this space. So, uh, and others called that out rightly earlier uh, in the discussions. Uh, and a lot of support for the things you're saying there, Francoise, in the chat. Uh, so a lot that resonates. Uh, I'm going to move to uh, Pamela um, next. Well, many of the things that you mentioned, I wanted to talk uh, in general and not in uh, specific questions. But I think that the way to fund us for us, it's very related with our strategy and political principles and programs. So how to how not to leave that, that framework, that route, it has to, to do with the historical discussion as a coordinators of how to fund it. For us, it's very important to define the autonomy. And autonomy is independence-based in the democratic the decisions that we make independently of what that decision is and that's how for instance we had a uh, general uh, feminist strikes and sometimes we dispute constitutional decisions from social movements and the autonomy for us also means 
things like the powers of the states, of the uh, church, of the corporations, and everything that promotes and sustains principles and policies that attack uh, and make uh, the life more precarious. So this is a great debate because at some point we were going to get funding uh, produced by voting. So that would be from institutions. And in the sense that what we were, we were, we made that decision because that was a different place that is not institutions, that is the place that we, where we are uh, shaping the institutionality that we want from the future. And for us, it's not enough only to have a specific funding towards a, a reality, but we need to change the structure, the basis we are fighting for a, so, a radical socializations of life. So uh, reproductive and sexual uh, rights, for instance, we think that. But we are also voting of how to how Congress and the different institutions will do that today. They're also responsible for people to have less funding for their own lives. So thinking about that, the spaces like organizations, uh, ONGs that we've been able to uh, work with, in a framework and a successful framework, as they said, but I would say like to be able to to reflect jointly. There are a feminist foundations. One of them is called Fondo Alquimia. That is a beating. We do it every year with encounters and of different uh, nations. Through these, we have a structure base of, of funding. We had also work with uh, uh, Foundation Rosa Luxemburgos, especially uh, about uh, seminars, books, and topics that we need to uh, get deeper into. And that has to do a lot with a, a political crisis in the country. And also uh, as cooperatives. And this we, we understand, like if we have an encounter, we invite uh, all the people that produce and there are principles, products, and goods that we're going to need. And we are never going to be able to reach and give a financial solutions to all the needs that we have, because that's not the reason either that we, we uh, are rising. We want to rise uh, to change the structure of the society from a radical transforming feminist perspective. And in the same way, we have had uh, founding campaigns and organizations have collaborated from their independence and autonomy, like uh, unions, uh, earth uh, defense funding, and uh, different uh, organizations. And in our country also, there is some institutional funds from the governments. And to be able to have that, those funds, you have to be, uh, you have to be incorporated. And we are an organization, as a, as a fact, when we march on the uh, street, we don't ask for permissions. We occupy the streets. And the same way we had been uh, reaching out to funds and organizations and funders that interact positively with our policies and our strategies and principles. That's what I wanted to say. Thanks, Pamela. Really, I think some good examples there of of how practically uh, funding can be organized and, and managed differently, but also a reminder of, of, 
of, of, the, of the, uh, the great deal of work that still needs to be done uh, in order to get to a place that's better. Uh, Onesa, over to you. Um, hi again. Um, I will just try to not to, you know, take from uh, Mr. Muhammad's time, uh, but I will ask the answer to the two questions about how to look at the blind spots and how to, you know, uh, and also the guy who asked um, about the organizations that do work on stuff um, that's, you know, against the the government's, uh, let's just say, mainstream or beliefs on thought or thoughts. Uh, the first question is, as I said earlier, do your homework uh, for the funders. They have to do their homework and they have to read, 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 and not from only an Ontario-less uh, point of view, but you have to see, you know, what, where is the issue? And you have to look at the, you know, the history of the issue. Like for instance, like if you are going to support an LGBTQ, um, you have to go there and read about the LGBTQ history and, and what are the, you know, and if there is a blind spot, it's gonna be there right away. And you're gonna look if there are actual people who work from work on this actually blind spot, for instance. Um, and the second question, uh, that's one I hope you guys understood this point and the um, second point is you really just go, gonna do it um like undercover work all right for instance let's talk in my context here in Sudan abortion all right abortion bills and you know reproductive health a lot of things abortion is actually you know uh criminalized in Sudan uh, but uh, I believe that abortion should be like available for anyone there are people and activists who believe the same so when you get, you know, cases like that, you just don't, you know, create a, you know, a big organization that, well, we actually support the abortion or else you are going to get killed, not by the, not by the organization, by the society, like a group of gangs who would just cut your neck off and that's it. So yeah, you work undercover. This is how you manage to do that. Thank you. Thanks, Unesa, and I think some, some some important parallels there with what Francoise was talking about earlier around blind spots um, and a reminder of popular um, backlash and 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 the environment out with the kind of traditionally political conversation that is actually quite scary in many places. So thanks for speaking up uh, on those issues, Mohammed. Please. Um, it's it is a lot that we've talked about so uh, i'm going to give you the final word <laughs> um good luck uh, uh but um you know you of all of the bodies un women uh is is eminently capable of uh of guiding us in the right direction so uh any any concluding reflections from you thanks well i i have to say that i don't totally agree with that um <laughs> because uh, we're 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 uh, we're no authority. I think it will be good to uh, to see us as a partner, and and we think out loud about issues. Uh, we don't want to be yet another colonial power. Um, but um, talking about two issues, maybe I would like to to think out loud with the first, and I don't have an answer. How can we bring to these spaces? Um, uh, the, the the those who do not have access. How can we facilitate access for um, a feminist, a young feminist who only speaks Tamil, or uh, a young women human rights defender in Kabul who does not 
speak anything but Dari or Pashtun, um, or uh, someone in in um, who who does not only speak uh, Swahili. I, I we need to think how can we not speak on their behalf, but how can we facilitate that voice? And and that is a question that I don't have an answer to um, in a in a in a clear way. The other issue, which is attending to your question, how can we move forward? Definitely through partnerships. We need to expand the base of partnerships, but we need to expand it in a responsible and aware way. We need to engage and we need to make sure that we do not repeat the challenges of the past um, where new partners are coming with conditionalities um, and coming on their own terms just because they have the financing. I stop here and, and back to you, David. Uh, thanks, Mohammed. Uh, just, I mean, I'm going to slightly put you on the spot, and, and don't, don't, I haven't forewarned you about this. So, um, if you don't, don't worry if there's not an immediate answer. But you know, what can we expect from uh, the Commission on the Status of Women uh, later? Uh, you know, in the next month. Um, I mean, does the, the conversation today? I mean, how do you see that? How do you see that playing out? Um, uh, in New York, well, it won't be in. New I know it's going to be virtual. Uh, it'll be in the cloud, right? But uh, so, so how do how do you see? Do you see any obvious links here, or what would you? Where would you draw the link? I I would speak from you and women's uh, space because it's definitely a, a, a government's uh, driven process. But from you and women's space, we really will continue to aim for having more voice and agency for women and all genders in climate solutions uh, and uh, moving ahead with um, blue and, and green responsible economies. So it's the voice and agency there that we are pushing for. Great, thanks. And sorry to, 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 to spring that one on you, but I mean, That's I think you know what, what how I, I think the UN gets a bad rap actually I think I think it's the it's it's what we have I think you know we have to we have to organize and and, and channel our uh, our energies uh, into the space in order for it to be a positive productive and, and progressive force in the world so so I that's kind of why I direct some of this uh, uh, that way um I've, we've literally got a minute before I need to close the session so I just wanted to give um, I'm conscious that Francoise and Onesa didn't have quite as much time as the others. So Francoise, Onesa, is there anything else you wanted to say at this point before we close off? Um, I think for me, like, uh, I, I was able to touch everything. And yeah, this is my final remarks. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. But I also wish that you could actually take what I said in consideration, you know, for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Anissa. Francoise? Thank you. Um, I think what I will say is as we think about, we are in the middle of a, we are in a moment of thinking about where we come from and unlearning, and that's great. And we're creating, we're experimenting, but I also want us all to remember that there are feminists uh, who've been doing this for a while. So to go back to that knowledge, over the, the years. And I also want to say again about women's funds, that there are mechanisms that are already pushing for and practicing proximity and flexibility. 
So before everybody goes inspired by this conversation to go and create yet another mechanism that is complicated, that's going to take five years to put in place, let's see what's happening already and how we can build on that and invest in that. I'm just going to say that and improve that, obviously. But uh, I think I just fear sometimes that people are inspired to go and start from scratch every single time. Thank you. So thanks both. So Onesa, a charge to us, you know, I hope you've all been writing it down because, you know, we've actually, there's been a tremendous amount here that we can, we can take forward and we need to commit as individuals to, to put our energies and drive behind making progress here. Uh, and also to, from Francoise to, I guess, if you'll forgive me for saying, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, actually. Uh, there are tremendous examples of um successful progress through uh, feminist activism and and indeed at, at the risk of a bit of self-promotion i mean some of the some of the work that my colleagues have been doing here at odi has been to try and amplify and shine a light on some of those stories of change so we would encourage you to check out odi.org for for some of that work uh, and indeed links to the work of of colleagues uh, who've been charting uh, and uh, uh, cataloging some of these these efforts successes and challenges elsewhere as well okay so huge thank you to everybody uh, for for this session um particularly to francoise pamela unesa and and mohammed uh, for for putting up particularly with uh, my corralling of, of of what has been an extraordinarily rich um collection of inputs from from our uh, energized and uh, inspirational participants. So thank you to all of you for, for being here today. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to the discussion. Apologies to those of you who've, who've written questions or who have who've commented in the chat and we haven't had the opportunity to get to them, but I would encourage you uh, to continue the conversation. I hope that you've made some connections through the chat, uh, you've shared some emails and that you'll be checking out some of the resources that have been shared by colleagues in the chat uh, across the discussions today. Um, we've run out of time now, but um, I think we've, we've emboldened ourselves with material for our call to action. So I will just say thank you uh, on behalf of all of the speakers and panelists, and I'm gonna hand over now to uh, the ODI Chief Executive, Sara Pantoliano, who's going to um, take over for some closing points in the very final session. Thank you. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you, David. What an incredible um, set of conversations we've had in these past four hours. Um, I think if we needed any reminder of you know, the power and the promise of feminist social movements, as Mr. Brophy put it this morning, we certainly had that today. Um, I'm really left with uh, Hakima's question. You know, she said at one point, what would the world look like if feminist movements hadn't made the gains they had? And would that be a world you'd like to live in? And I know the answer to that. Um, but we also heard particularly in this, you know, in this Zoom session, we heard a lot about the barriers, the enduring barriers that um, feminist movements are facing, you know, starting with uh, um, the 
the power of the patriarchy and actually the attendant backlash that we are experiencing, but also in terms of you know, the challenges around resources, not just the levels, but clearly the modalities. You know, we heard a lot how the modalities we currently have break movements, um, generate competitions, actually create elite captures within um, feminist movements um, themselves. Um, and, and there are obviously already, we're just hearing from Francois, um, things that we can build on, like women's funds or solutions that can be harnessed. Um, there is still uh, much work um, to be done, but hopefully is a conversation we can continue and you know we can continue to support each other on this journey. But today's conversation would have not been possible without the support of Irish Aid. And I think Irish Aid really deserves to be commended for um, really helping, enabling this conversation in a really kind of rooted and genuine conversation, as many of you have said, you know, one day is often elusive because grassroots movements are not really um, sort of um, brought into these platforms. So with that, I'd really like to hand over to um, Irish Shades Director General, Rory de Burka for his closing remarks. Rory, I hope you're there somewhere. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, and first of all, thanks to you and all of your team for, for facilitating what I, what I found, and I hope everybody else found to be a really fantastic, rich, passionate discussion uh, which touched on very personal issues for I think everybody that 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 that's that's on the on the call um, we owe you and and, and your team a, a, a debt of thanks for for organizing this and also to each of the speakers uh, the panelists and the participants as well quiero agradecer también los, los oradores las panelistas y los I also want to thank for the speakers, uh, the participants and the panelists for their participation in this event is very, very important. And thank you too for your partnership, uh, Sarah, with, with those in, in enabling us to help bring this conversation together. I was struck listening to what people said um, and the questions uh, and the challenges, um, but also the solutions that, you know, it was like going back and listening to to my mom and her sisters uh, when I was when I was younger, talking through some of the challenges they had with the power framework in which they were emerging into young adulthood, into young motherhood, where where they wanted to challenge. Um, and I'm struck at the fragility of change as well. The country that I am an adult in is very different to the country I was a boy in. Thankfully, it's a better place for women. But it could be a lot better yet. Um, but I'm also struck by the fragility of change. Um, we need to hold on to what we've got and protect it while continuing to move forward. And how when we try and interpret the power structures, and I think a number of speakers touched on this, whether they're colonial or post-colonial, whether they're patriarchal, um, whether elite capture in all of the different ways it goes, whether it's how donor money works. Um, we have to, first of all, question ourselves and question where we come from. Um, you know, what are, what are our biases? What systemic and political barriers are we imposing on the discussion? Are we part of the backlash or are we part of the change? 
And I think as a donor, that's a real question that we have to always ask ourselves. Um, the passion of social activists, feminist social movements is really important because yes, you're working for gender justice. Yes, you're driving social change, but also you keep the rest of us honest. And that's really, really important in this. And, and your challenge, and that challenge was in the conversation today was something uh, that I think we have to take forward. Um, I think also, you know, there's a lot in the discussion that I think as a donor, we need to reflect on around structural, institutional and social obstacles. And we will try and build that into our funding and our support as we move forward. And I think too, you know, donors are challenging and being a donor is challenging. We're not always part of the solution, but we can be catalyzing. And I think in the discussion today, we heard ways in which uh, as a donor, we can be hopefully catalyzing with our money, but also with our voice and voice is what we heard a lot of today. And I think we've got to keep doing it. And there's a question for me then about how do we each hold each other accountable? Who are we all accountable to? Um, and, and what are the accountabilities we have to build in if we want to get change? Some of that's generational or intergenerational. You know, uh, we heard early on in the discussion about, you know, the, the, I suppose the disempowerment of youth uh, in, in Africa, including young women. Um, but that's also to do with the old world and the new world um, and all of that. So there's, there, there, there are different accountabilities that we need to think through. Uh, intersectionality. How do we work across the kinds of human barriers? And we see this in the development between nexus questions around development versus humanitarian action, but nobody lives a, you know, nobody lives a nexus life. We all live intersectional lives and we need to do what we can to ensure that young girls, young women are enabled as best as we can to be as fully rounded as possible. And I'm conscious in saying that we depend on organizations on individuals to step forward to volunteer and we heard from a number of speakers about working for change after everything else happens and how do we help people to make the time to win the time in a complicated world so i thought it was a really really rich discussion and um, there's a lot for us uh, i think to learn from everyone who participated We've taken, you know, myself and my colleagues, good notes, I hope, of the, the discussion. And I think we want to take that into our funding as we move forward. We are very committed as, as, a, as a donor to, to, to investing in gender equality. Um, and we want to continue that. But it's not just about quantum. It has to be about quality. Um, and, um, and in there... You know, I do think, and as Francoise, I think, talked about listening and flexibility. And I think we have to really embed those two qualities in what we do moving forward, you know, and that includes investing in, in feminist and women's rights organizations. Um, and I think the minister went through some of the details of that, so I won't go through all of it. But, um, you know, in particular, I think that the Girls Fund is a way in which we can, we can, we can really do that. And we heard from uh, Chernor earlier on uh, in the second session, and we work, you know, with Chernor and, and purposeful and plan in, in taking that forward. So, look, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I think it's been a fantastic discussion. 
Once again, thanks to Sarah and her team. Thanks to all the speakers and panelists. Uh, and thanks to everybody for participating. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rory. Thank you to you, to your leadership. Thank you to your team. And if I'm allowed also, thank you to the ODI team that's done an incredible work and particularly to Emily Tant, who has been a real stalwart in pulling together you know, a really genuine um, global conversation. Um, and thank you to all of you, to the speakers, to the participants. I hope this is the beginning of a journey that we can continue to try and uh, and help, you know, in terms of the conversation we've generated today. And I look forward to continue to um, work with, uh, with our Irish colleagues to see how we can build on today's um, dialogue. But with that, let's keep up the momentum for feminist change. And until the next time, thanks again, everyone.